Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing The Silence of the Lambs from 1991, directed by Jonathan Demme, written by Ted Talley, based on the 1988 novel by Thomas Harris, starring Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, and Ted Levine. And in this film, an FBI trainee is assigned to question an imprisoned cannibalistic serial killer in the hopes that he will lead them to the notorious and still-at-large serial killer known as Buffalo Bill. If you're new to the show, we are going to talk about some spoiler-free background information on this movie for the first 15 or 20 minutes or so. But after that, we are going to move into spoiler territory, and our little fake break followed by some transition music is how you know that it's time to duck out and go see this movie if you haven't. Ashwin, you've seen this movie before, but had it been a while? Yeah, I, th- I think it had been a long time. And watching it, it kind of felt like I might not have ever like seen it beginning to end. Like every scene felt familiar, but uh, seeing it all like kind of put together, uh, yeah, it just kind of felt like I was watching it for the first time. Uh, what about you? It yeah, I've seen it many times, but I do think I'm no. I know I've seen it start to finish before, mm-hmm. but I do think I've also seen it quite a few times, like partially. Um, it just played on TV a lot, right? You always caught some of it yeah. on cable TV. Edited for TV. Edited for TV, exactly. Yeah, in the 90s. Yep. Yeah. I remember like not being allowed to see this uh, when it came out. Uh, do, do you remember, like, I, cause I, everyone was talking about it, and I feel like parents and everyone would like kind of go and see it, but then obviously it wasn't like kid-friendly. Yeah, I don't really remember it being discussed at the time of its release. That was when we were only like eight. So I don't really remember mention of it until later, until it was on TV. Oh, okay, okay, got it. Not the kind of movie my parents would have gone to see in the theater. <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel like we might have like, or someone must have rented it, and then I wasn't like allowed to watch it or something. But uh, it was like such a highly acclaimed film for its time that I think uh, it definitely made the the had it made a buzz. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because it's got it's a very dark film with some disturbing content, but uh, it was extremely popular. It was it had a budget of nineteen million and a box office of two hundred and seventy three million, which is fourteen mm-hmm. times its budget. Right. Uh, it was number one at the box office for five weeks. It was the fourth highest grossing film at the domestic box office in nineteen ninety one, after Terminator Two, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Home Alone. So. Yeah, everybody and their mom was going to see this. It was it was critically acclaimed. It had uh, many nominations at the Oscars, and it was one of only three films in history to win all the major, the big five categories, which are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Yeah, that's super impressive. I, I can't believe that. I can't believe it either. Um I, like, I can, seeing the movie, but it's cool. It was also nominated for Best Sound and for Film Editing, but, but mm-hmm. did not win those categories. Right. Were you shocked by the box office numbers? Yes and no. Like, I knew this was a popular movie, but the, the number four at the box office, like, that's, that's kind of shocking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you... number four for the year, that's, that's a surprising it is, yeah. For like this genre of film at that time, I was trying to think like if this film came out today, would you see like a similar turnout? 
And uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I, I try to think of like a recent film that, that is similar. And the closest I came to was like No Country for Old Men. Like, do you feel like that's a similar vein of like a psychological thriller horror type category? I think that's a great parallel. Yeah. And it, that movie had a couple of big names in it. Like Jodie right. Foster, I think, had already won an Academy Award at this point. So Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, she's no slouch. Neither was Hopkins. So. Hopkins, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. But but I mean, like that film only brought in like I think 170 million or so. So yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder if like a film came out today like this, would it get the same kind of acclaim or or uh, return? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but yes, and then speaking of genre, this was, and we'll get to this at some point in the discussion. This is the only quote unquote horror film to win Best Picture and only one of six that were ever nominated for Best Picture, the others being The Exorcist, uh, Jaws, The Sixth Sense, Black Swan, and Get Out. But I think there is a debate as to whether or not this is a horror film or a thriller. Mm, interesting. There are a lot of movies that kind of uh, go in, in, uh, on, on that line, right, of thriller horror. Yeah. That's- yeah, and another popular one from this year... Um, I think it was 1991, was um, Misery that, that kind of straddled the line. Too. Oh, yeah. Right. So I think we'd get a little spoilery if we talked about, had that debate up front, but maybe in our review we'll talk about whether we think this is a, a thriller or a horror film. Sure. Yeah. Let's come back to that one. Yeah. Directed by Jonathan Demme, he got his start uh, working under Roger Corman, who primarily directed exploitation movies. And in keeping with that, Jonathan Demme's first film, directorial debut, was a 1974 women in prison film called Cage Heat. Hmm. Um, then later he'd go on to win Best Director for Silence of the Lambs. And he continued to have a long, prolific career into the 2000s and 2010s. He had films uh, in that time period like The Manchurian Candidate and Rachel Getting Married. And he did a lot of TV and documentary work until his death in 2017. Yeah, I think the other big one like is Philadelphia, maybe. Yeah, yeah, he did Phil- Philadelphia. Good, good call. I forgot to include that one. And then randomly, like he did some uh, movies that were like concert films, like the Talking Head ones. Or yeah, the Talking he Heads did. One. Yeah. Oh, did he do the Talking Head ones? Cool. cool. Yeah, stop making sense. Did you, you ever see that one? I have seen that one. Pretty rad. Yeah, that's a great one. He did. Yeah, he had a lot of concert films. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was always working. It seems he's he's got a pretty big IMDb page. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great filmography. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I noticed before this to tie back to our last episode, Jodie Foster when she was young was in Freaky Friday, the nineteen seventy two version. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Good. Ties back to our last discussion on Christopher Landon, who directed Freaky. Yeah. Right. And happy death day. Yeah. Did you notice that um, Clarice's friend in this looked pretty familiar, played by Cassie Lemons? No, I saw her name on on the cast, but no, I, I don't recognize her. Have we seen her before? She was Virginia Madsen's friend in the original Candyman. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. man, now they say that. Yeah, I can totally picture her. She dies, right? right, in Candyman? Well, you don't want to spoil it for these people. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I know. I think I know who you're talking about. She does something in Candyman. All <laughs> right. Uh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, after reading the Academy Awards and the box office, it's probably trivial to mention, but the Rotten Tomato score is 96% from critics, 
95% from users. Um, it's on, this film's number 74 on a AFI's list of the 100 best American movies of all time. Mm. It's fifth on their list of the best American thrillers. It's just generally regarded uh, as one of the best movies of all time. Yeah. Yeah, pretty widespread acclaim. Mm-hmm. Though, and a uh, uh, checkbox in the horror argument is that this was awarded the best horror film at the 1991 awards that were called the Horror Hall of Fame, which was an award show that ran from 90 to 92, hosted by Robert Englund. Hmm. Oh, cool. Well, that's evidence yeah. right there, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And Misery was also nominated that year. So nice. you could you could cite that as evidence for both movies in, in that argument. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard not to give it to the film that like just cleaned up on Best Picture and Best right. Movie of the Year. Yeah. Um, the American Film Institute also named Hannibal Lecter as the number one villain of all time. And I think that's, Lecter is really kind of like the film's biggest legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, this book, there was a movie before this that was based on, um, the, the series of books. So Red Dragon was the original novel in 1981 that introduced Hannibal Lecter. And that was adapted as a film called Manhunter in 1986. Mm-hmm. And then Silence of the Lambs was the 1988 book that was a sequel to that 1981 novel, which they then made into the movie in 1991. There was a book called Hannibal in 1999, which was a sequel to The Silence of the Lambs. They made that into a movie in 2001. Then Red Dragon was kind of another adaptation of the original novel in the series that came out in 2002. And then there's Hannibal Rising, which was a book in 2006 and a movie in 2007. So there are, this is a series of four books as part of the Hannibal Lecter franchise, and it totals to five movies as the Hannibal Lecter franchise because there are two movies that are adaptations of the original novel, Red Dragon. Mm, okay. Yeah, I, I was blown away. I didn't realize this was like already a sequel to a movie that came out before. And, uh, I never knew that either. I knew there was a bit of a franchise here, but I didn't realize, or maybe I heard at one point and forgot that Silence of the Lambs is technically a sequel. Yeah, I always thought Silence of the Lambs was like the original. And then like, yeah, you had like Red, Red, Hannibal and Red Dragon, which made a lot of sense. Right. But uh, Have, have you, you seen s- any of these? Uh, I've seen Red Dragon. I haven't seen Hannibal. How about you? I have not seen any. It seems Red Dragon's probably the second most popular. Yeah, that's a great one. I, I think, again, you have like a strong cast in there. I think Edward Norton... Isn't that one? Oh, okay, nice. So it's, it's, it's a good one. I'll have to check some of these out. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, this one definitely has like the most acclaim, right, out of the whole series? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this has the most acclaim out of many, <laughs> like, many movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Unless Animal Rising won four Oscars. Yeah, I think so. Came really close. <laughs> uh, and then And then there's like the whole TV show, right? Um, what is it? It's called Hannibal, I think. On Yes, right? right? TV show as well. Yeah, which have you caught any of that? I have not. No. Oh, okay. I think uh, I think that's a, it's, it's pretty good. One. I've I've seen like half of the first season and uh, really good. But I, I think to your point, yeah, uh, Hannibal does seem like the core character that drives like a lot of this franchise. Sure. Right. Which which is interesting because in this film he's only in it for like twenty twenty five minutes, so I, I wouldn't even call him the lead in this one. Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, he really has very little screen time. So he's. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's. The lead actor, I would say, as as far as all the men, he has the most screen time. <laughs> yeah, that's but true. yeah, he's he's not in it too too much. 
Right, right. Yeah. But boy, when he's in it, he's just such a, such a presence. Yeah, man, he steals the show. He's he's insane. Yeah. Um, did you see that Roger Ebert? I think might have slammed it when it came out. I believe it was Siskel. Oh, Siskel did. Okay. Right. And, Robert Ebert really enjoyed it, but Siskel, this is like one of his big like everyone. <laughs> everyone's like, "Oop, you fucked that one up." <laughs> Missed the button. Yeah, I wonder if he ever went back and changed his mind on it. But yeah, he was he was pretty harsh on it when it came out. What did he say about it? Did you did you read that? Uh just briefly. I think he just thought it was like a. I got the sense that he was saying they took a good story and kind of like watered it down or made it like too screen friendly or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I feel like he just thought it like the the adaptation to film like kind of uh, watered it down a bit. Gotcha. Um, the score was done by Howard Shore, who we just talked about in our episode on the Brood. Oh, he did the music for the Brood. Yeah, yeah, he he worked a lot with Cronenberg, so Shore is pretty fresh in my mind. His sound is, and I was able to tell it was him before they even showed his name on the screen. We did a Cronenberg January on the Discord server, so I've watched a lot of Cronenberg recently. And Howard Shore's he's not as recognizable of a name as some of the other popular composers, but uh, yeah, he's good. I, I like his style. Yeah, in this movie, I thought his score really stood out. It's pretty, pretty mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah, he had said something about trying to make a score that just blended in so perfectly with the m- movie that you didn't really even realize there was a score. And I think that is a, something we'll come back to later. I, I think yeah. that's an important part of this movie. Sure, sure. <clears throat> Gene Hackman was originally going to direct this and possibly play the role of Jack Crawford, Clarice's boss, which is wild. Yeah, what happened? I, I can understand why he walked away from it or gave the rights up. I think for most of the people who walked away, and I think Gene Hackman is no exception, they saw the script and were just like, this is too much. Like, this is too dark. Mm. I'm not comfortable with the subject matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I think, why Michelle Pfeiffer, Meg Ryan, and Laura Dern all turned it down. At least right. I know Pfeiffer and Ryan turned it down. Dern, I don't know if it was her decision not to be cast, but those were the top three choices from Demi until... Um, they landed on Jodie Foster, who was eager to have it the whole time. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think she wanted to buy the rights as well. Yeah. And Sean Connery turned down the role of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, right, right. It's I, I think that's just so telling of the time when this movie came out that everyone was so like disgusted by the script or felt like it was so uh, violent or out there, where like today, like I, I like by today's standards, it's not that extreme, is it? I don't think so. I mean, there still are some elements that are pretty extreme. Um, but mm. a lot of film analysts think that this movie's legacy is that it contributed to the immense popularity of serial killer media and police oh, yeah. procedural films involving serial killers. Right. <laughs> you know, you've got stuff like Seven and, uh, I never saw Kiss the Girls, but I assume that was kind of a serial killer totally, yeah. crime drama thing. Very similar. So, Yep. There's a lot of movies like this in the 90s after this film. Yeah, I feel like... And even that takes us to today where we're obsessed with true crime. Oh my God, like the podcast and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I, I feel like in the 90s there was like this uh, thing around like New York Times bestsellers with like John Grisham, whoever the guy was that was writing these books, uh, were like those kind of like suspense thriller, like a serial killer and a detective like hunting them down and someone being kidnapped was all the rage back then. So, yeah, we were big into crime dramas in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, it just kind of fell right into that. 
Yeah, Grisham's got like the white collar crime angle down, and uh, <laughs> but usually there was something darker lurking under the surface too of the white collar crime. Yeah, yeah. Talking about like Pelican Brief. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the firm and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, any background that you would like to touch on before I move on to the Ohio connection? Um, the one other thing that I was wondering if you saw was that this was there was like some inspiration here from a real life. Um, serial killer and a profiler who are working together, I think, to track down the Green River, or sorry, the Green River serial killings in Washington. Did you read about that at all? No, I didn't read up on that. Yeah, I think uh, some guy named Bob Keppel was working with Ted Bundy to try to track down this guy um, who they finally ended up catching like years later, um, and, and that guy was uh, executed. But that, I think that might have been part of the origination story behind this movie, or behind this story, I guess. Okay, that's interesting. I missed that. Yeah. Um, but no, that that's it. That's all I got. Okay, cool. Well, um, I stumbled upon an Ohio connection, so I decided not to trouble Alex. Oh, He had a, cool. a busy weekend actually hanging out with me, so yeah, I will uh, save him the time and go into the connection that I found, and that is through Ted Levine, who played Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. Although he grew up near you, Osh, in Oak Park, Illinois, he was born in a very small town on the Ohio River called Bel Air, Ohio. Bel Air? Like the Fresh Prince? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's the same exact town with the same exact culture. Oh, cool. <laughs> I knew we had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> got to be one somewhere in Ohio. Exactly. No, I mean, it was a very small town, like population of four or 5,000 or something. Oh, okay. Nice. Cool. Yeah. I thought in the movie uh, there was a reference to like Bellevue, Ohio, as well. As... Yeah, there. I, I forgot. There's um, the town Buffalo Bill is the character is from is Belvedere, Ohio. Oh, Belvedere, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's where I thought you were gonna go, but no, good, good connection on the actor. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, listeners, we're gonna start spoiling stuff now. But Ashwin, before we do that. I smell something really tasty cooking upstairs. I'm just going to go pop into the kitchen and see what my wife's planning for dinner. Do you mind holding on a second? Ooh, sounds good. Yeah, go for it. Okay, I'll be right back. All right. Okay, buddy, I'm back. Hey, what's what are, what are you guys cooking up there? So it looks like it's going to be good. She's got a nice pot of fava beans going, and she's poured a couple <laughs> glasses of Chianti, and she says the main course is going to be a surprise. So Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm excited to see what she's got in store for me. Any any slurping sounds coming? <laughs> not yet, not yet. She said it'll be ready as soon as I'm done with the podcast. Nice, nice. Sorry. <laughs> that sounds good, man. Uh, okay, so this movie opens with a training montage uh, over Howard Shore's score. Clarice Starling is an FBI trainee, played by Jodie Foster, of course. She's running through the woods and training, and the music's a bit dramatic and endearing at the same time as the titles run. And Starling is called off the training course to talk to her director, Jack Crawford, who tells her he's got an assignment for her. She's going to be interviewing a cannibalistic serial killer named Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Uh, he doesn't say so to Clarice, but Clarice assumes that her boss is intending this to be a part of an effort to find out more 
about a different serial killer who is currently at large, who is known as Buffalo Bill. Crawford warns Clarice to be careful physically and mentally during this interview with Dr. Hannibal Lecter and tells her not to let not to tell Lecter anything personal because you don't want him inside your head. So she goes to the facility where he is imprisoned, and that is run by this goony guy named Dr. Chilton, who immediately hits on Clarice and then becomes quite terse with her after he is rebuffed. And on the way to Lecter's cell, he gives her these very important safety instructions very quickly and shows her a picture of a nurse who Lecter brutalized a few years back when he faked a heart attack to get out of his cell. So pretty giant dickhead here, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that uh, they didn't show us the uh, image for that nurse, right? Yeah, that was kind of a cool touch. They, they leave that to the imagination. He just whips out a photo from his pocket and shows Clarice of what's happened to this, the horrible thing that Lecter did to this nurse. Right, right. Uh, and yeah, um, I, I feel like this is all like just like a huge buildup towards uh, the reveal of uh, Hannibal Lecter, which I, I thought that like works really well between like what you're hearing, the description from him by Crawford, and now by the guy who runs this institute. It's all kind of like painting this image in your head of like who is this dude that she's about to meet. Yeah, and it makes it more tense. Like this guy being pissed that like Clarice was all business with him, it leads to things being more tense because then he's just like rushing through these safety instructions with her. I found myself like trying to remember oh. in my own head what all of his instructions were and being like, yeah. I would need like a pen to write that down. And you're just like <laughs> nervous for Clarice as she's going in there to talk to this dude. Yeah. And like one of the rules is no pens allowed. <laughs> Can't yeah. write down the yep. rules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. She's definitely being thrown into this. I feel like the this first part of the movie does a really good job of like setting her up as a character uh, with the opening credits, with the conversation with Crawford, uh, showing her like across like the other FBI uh, agents. Like you really get the sense like they're putting her in this um, like, yeah, I guess like she kind of like stands out here like amongst like who she's hanging out with or who she's around. Like she's kind of like an outlier, right? Yes. And one thing that they hint at and and are kind of overt with if you if you notice it and are looking for it she's the only woman in every environment i mean that's probably pretty obvious probably to women um that she's the only woman in every environment she's in yeah not only that but every environment she's in the men stare at her right they're looking at her longer than a person normally looks at another person yeah yeah i feel like she's being treated differently she's being looked at so I, yeah, you kind of feel that in every interaction, every scene. Uh, there's like that implication that oh, um, this is someone different. That like in, in this like male-dominated world. So I, I thought they did a really good job with that. Yeah, and Lecter really brings that home too for the viewer. Um, in something, he makes a passing comment to her. I can't even remember the context, but he mentions like the eyes that are on her, mm. like in her day-to-day life. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. He definitely references that. Yep. And so he's painted as a super intelligent guy. He was a psychiatrist, and he's very polite with her. He's He's got, like, uh, he, this weird standard of manners. He'll, like, say something super crude and, like, cutting, but also has this, like, <laughs> grin code of courtesy that he feels he needs to live up to at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I always find that I think that always makes a villain more interesting when they've got their own little sense of morality. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like he's like the sophisticated dude. He's drawing paintings of like some place in Europe. Um, he knows like uh, nice wine and stuff, but then like he'll stay like 
crude stuff. So it's, it's, it's this kind of weird duality. Yeah, for sure. Um, and they have an interesting conversation. I think it's really tense and kind of stressful as a viewer because it's a very skillful, strategic discussion on both of their parts. Um, or more so on his part. She's trying, and she kind of makes a couple of missteps. Mm-hmm. There, there's one part where she says, I'm here to learn from you and question you, and maybe you can decide for yourself if I'm qualified to do that. And he goes, that is rather slippery of you. <laughs> and it's yeah. just like really highlights that this is kind of a game of chess here, and she's losing. Yeah, a battle of the minds, for sure. Yeah, and ultimately he kind of quits talking to her. He's He's had it and he's done, but on her way out... This guy next to him named Miggs, another patient slash prisoner, flings his semen onto her face. Something I don't know if I ever noticed when Dude, I saw this film when, as a younger Yeah, person. I never noticed that either. Like, what the- <laughs> I think maybe, I mean, I was. it's been a long time since I saw this. I may have been too young to like really even understand that that's what was happening. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I feel like that's something like someone would have remembered, right? That, right? that was like so jarring to see. Like, holy shit, you just got like semen thrown at you. Yeah, and it's so interesting to me too because we can talk about like, oh, cannibalism and there's horror imagery and stuff. This is the fourth most popular movie of the year and mm-hmm. it's got a <laughs> uh, somebody flinging semen onto a character's face. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you see the semen like fly through the air. Yeah, I was I was amazed. I couldn't believe that. Yeah. Um anyway, <laughs> she he like Lecter's kind of mortified by this. He calls her back to his cell and gives her a second chance. He gives her the name of an old patient of his to go talk to. So and Oh, go ahead. You know, I, I'm curious because like uh, the way Hannibal is set up is like he people have a number of people have tried to talk to him and he like refuses to talk to anyone. Um, so the only reason he talks to her is because she had the semen thrown at her. I think that the entire time they were talking, he was his curiosity was piqued and he had respect for her, which was my perception. Other. Mm. A more cynistic, (laughs) cynical view coming from like a guy like Chilton would say, you're just Lecter's type, like your boss was smart for sending you. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's like kind of diminishing her. But it does seem like Lecter's like legitimately curious about her and develops a respect for her. And I think perhaps this was all part of his game and he was going to call her back, but... Hmm. I do think that, as we talked about, he's got this sense of courtesy, and Mig's doing that to her. Essentially, when she's there to talk to Lecter in what is, for all intents and purposes, Lecter's home, may have brought him some shame or something. Or, uh, um, I think I don't say. know. It, it could have stirred up some sympathy or something in him i'm not sure it's, it's an interesting thing i'd love to read this book and get more insight into the characters yeah yeah i thought you were gonna say it was the icing on the cake which would have been oh god kind of <laughs> too, too soon <laughs> but but yeah yeah i i think i think you're right that uh, she must have like said something that intrigued him during their conversation because yeah i just wonder how all those other conversations went that he was kind of shutting down and what it was about her that like made him uh, more interested and engaged, but obviously there was something there, and then yeah, the semen thing kind of put it over the top. I think he kind of like detested 
the proceduralness of everyone who had come to talk to him to try to get him to fill out various questionnaires yeah. and wanted actual conversation and like mental debate and a dialogue you know, yeah. with someone intelligent that he could actually talk to. He's sitting there alone, a very intelligent man without any intellectual discourse. So, right, right. I, so he likes the challenge. She was a bit more open to him than other people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what we assume. Um, and I loved, uh, he kind of like tore her up, right? Like by, the, is this the part where like he kind of like profiles her? It's like you grew up in West Virginia, your family's like trash. I think that's where like he's kind of saying that to her, right? Like, yeah, like your yeah. second rate shoes and you're trying real hard to prove yourself. <laughs> he, he dresses her down a bit and sees right yeah. through her. Yeah. Yeah. I love all the comments about her shoes. And <laughs> <laughs> that comes back, right? Right. It does. Yeah. Um, so upon, oh, also we learn a short time later that Lecter somehow talked Miggs into killing himself after this event. So another cool thing about him is you get this weird dynamic where he's a villain, but he killed Miggs to protect Starling's honor in a way. So it's weird. You're, you kind of root for him yeah, at the same time. He's kind of a gentleman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a complex character. Yeah, and I, I liked how, like, you don't see how he killed uh, Miggs, but I think it's described as, like, he was, like, whispering to Miggs all night or something. Right, that, and that, then like, Miggs swallows his own tongue, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah, which is just really cool. I, I feel like there's a lot of, like, folklore building around, like, who Hannibal is and what he can do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I won't get too hung up on you, you misusing the term <laughs> folklore on nearly every episode. <laughs> I'm just trying to stay consistent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Clarice, upon exiting the facility after this horrible semen flinging accident, uh, not accident, just fiasco, Clarice has a flashback of her dad coming home from work when she was a little girl, and we learn that he was a cop, and we get a very brief scene of an adult Clarice, more like a tiny moment, crying at her car after this whole semen fiasco, allowing us to see a moment of weakness before we cut back to a montage of Clarice's physical training again, Mm -hmm. um, back to her being strong. So Clarice eventually goes down to track down this old patient of Lecter's, which leads her to a series of kind of esoteric clues that conclude at a storage unit of Lecter's, which houses a severed head she meets Lecter again to ask about said head, and he said he didn't kill the guy. The man was one of his patients, his psychiatric patients, and after the man missed a few appointments, Lecter went to his house only to find that he had been murdered and then cross-dressed. Mm-hmm. cross-dressed. And he intimates to Clarice that he believes this murder was the work of Buffalo Bill. Right. And... After hearing this info about Buffalo Bill, we transition to a scene of a young woman driving home, um, and in the parking lot of her apartment complex, she's asked for some help moving furniture by a man in the parking lot who then traps her in his van and kidnaps her. He also asks what size she is and seems pleased to discover that she's a size 14. And this is, of course, Buffalo Bill, and the woman he has kidnapped, we later learn, is the daughter of a state senator. This was kind of a cool scene. I don't know. It just the abduction scene. Yeah, it was interesting to see Buffalo Bill and like how he yeah. works. Disturbing, but I don't know that. I, there's nothing likable about Bill, but the actor. I, I like the performance. 
Oh man, yeah. I've I've never seen like a performance like his, like in his in a serial killer. He's so unhinged. Uh, I mean, like everyone. I mean, also you have Hannibal Lecter on screen here. So yeah, that's quite a lot of competition. But I think this is one of the few scenes where we see Buffalo Bill in like the real world uh, actually abducting someone. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, we were know, talking before about how. Hannibal Lecter doesn't get much screen time. Buffalo Bill really doesn't get much screen time. Yeah, right, exactly. So, yeah, this, this uh, is really cool to see. Yeah. Um, after that scene, we learn, however, that the FBI is working on another lead. They've found a body that looks like Buffalo Bill's handiwork, and Director Crawford takes Clarice along to examine the body. And her director explains to her that Bill keeps these women alive for three days, shoots them, skins them after they're dead, and then dumps them in a body of water. He weighed the first body down so it would sink, but after that he got lazy and the rest have been floaters. And there's a scene where Clarice and Crawford and a couple other FBI agents come on the scene shortly after the body's been found, and you've got the classic tension between local police and the FBI. And her director, Crawford, goes into another room with the sheriff, and the other FBI agents join, leaving Clarice alone in the hallway with the local police. And this scene, to me, is crucial because it's at this moment that she has a flashback to her father's funeral when she was a girl. And I think the movie's trying to tell us here, in this moment, she feels abandoned by Crawford as he goes into the other room, leaving her alone with the other police. Um... And you could say that maybe this is a moment in her past when she felt, quote, unquote, abandoned hmm. by her father when he dies. That's I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, but to me it's clear that she sees Crawford as a father figure and wants to prove herself to him. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't get that relationship dynamic between her and Crawford uh, as like a, a father-daughter type scenario. Um, but yeah, I can see that in this one. I thought it was more just her being like in a funeral home, maybe after so many years, she's just kind of like reflecting back and it's reminding her of being at her own dad's funeral. But you, you think it was tied to Crawford. That, that makes sense because there's something later on which kind of hints on like some kind of unique relationship there. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think it was. But yeah, you you bring a good counter argument. <laughs> no, Brian, she's in the damn funeral home. <laughs> yeah. So she has a flashback to her father's funeral. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, of course, makes sense. But I, I don't think it was accidental timing that it was right after she was like left alone. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's interesting because they never really explain why Crawford uh, chose her. To, I mean, she's like a trainee. Why is he sending her to like investigate this uh, serial killer to find someone else? Like, I mean, you have people in the field, obviously, who could have done it. They never go into like why he selected her, right? He does do some strategic things that he has to do that she's not totally on board with to get to Buffalo Bill. So Chilton may have been right to an extent. She's maybe she's uh, Lecter's type, and and that's why he chose her. She's mm. also you know, near the top of her class and it seems to be pretty adept at what she does. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess it, it, wouldn't you go with, like, someone who has, like, graduated most of the time? Right, yeah, probably. Okay. But, and yeah. she's also, like, specifically interested in behavioral psychology type stuff. So sure. I think it was a combination of her skill set and, unfortunately, yeah, maybe her body type. Yeah, yeah. And I think in their first interaction, he does mention that he remembers her from, like, one of his classes that he taught so I, th- I think maybe you're right. Yeah, he was pretty impressed by her. Yeah, I do. I do think it wasn't like she was just bait. Like that, 
I almost feel bad now because she's a strong character. She's very smart and intelligent. Yeah. Um, and she proves that throughout the movie. So yeah, I, I, I think that she was a good choice, but I do think he's done some things to show that he'll do whatever is strategically necessary Yeah, to get to the bottom of this. So right. Chilton could be partially right. Right. That's interesting. Do you feel like um, Hannibal, like if if uh, if if uh, Clarice wasn't Clarice, if it was a, a man, do you really think that would have mattered to Hannibal? Like, is is part of her part of the fact that she's a woman? Why he's like being more open with her? It could be. I'd love to read the book. I'm sure there are people who have read the book and know deeper <laughs> insight into all these things and are shouting yeah. at us. But yeah. I, I just I never got the 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 feeling that he was like well like she's like my type or like yeah I, I want to open up to her because this is like the first time they're sending a woman so like I, I know like in every other interaction they're playing up like the sexism and like how um you know g- how uh, different or unorthodox it is like in the situation she's in but I feel like when she's talking one on one with Hannibal I I don't feel like he's also like looking at her with that same lens he's one of the few people that never hits on her <laughs> throughout exactly. the movie. Yeah, yeah, which which uh, I, I thought made like a cool bond between them. Well, then here's a question: Do you think maybe there's a bit of a father daughter uh, relationship between the two of them? Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> like, does she also want to prove herself to him because he is one of those people? And I don't know if you've ever met someone in this in your life who is really intelligent. And kind of acts like they see something of themselves in you, and you kind of want to prove them right. It would be an honor for yeah. someone so intelligent to think that you're intelligent. Yeah, yeah. I, I think when you put it that way, I think I think the Crawford one makes a lot more sense. Uh, just because, like, I, I feel like she still carries like a fear of Hannibal, maybe. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know if she's like vying for his admiration or not. Do you, Do you feel like he is or she is? I had never thought of it until now, but I believe on some level she could be. As I'm not saying she's not repulsed by him and terrified, but mm-hmm. I think maybe on some level it would be only human to think this guy is like playing mind games with me and yeah. won't give me the answers I need unless I somehow please him. And you'd probably want to be on his good side just to get the answers. Sure. Yeah, yeah, you have to play into his uh, personality, yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Just like you'd want to be on your dad's good side so he would allow you to do certain things. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) To get the answers, yeah. This may be a jump, but I I never really thought of it until just now. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, on the topic of of why she is chosen by Director Crawford, in in this scene she does prove herself. She successfully gets the local police to get off the scene so that they can do their work. And during the FBI autopsy of this body, she notes quite a few details that others haven't noticed, the most crucial of which is that there's a cocoon that's been shoved down the victim's throat. We learn that this cocoon is the chrysalis of a death's head moth that would have been imported from Asia and cared for diligently. She comes back to lecture with this new information for more questioning, but this time she comes armed with a deal directly from the state senator whose daughter has been kidnapped. The deal is that if he helps them find Buffalo Bill, he'll be transferred to a very cushy facility. And Lecter's down with this, but he also demands that they have a quid pro quo Q&A session so that he can learn more about Clarice before he gives her any more information. She tells him that her father died when she was 10 and reveals to him and us as the audience that her mother died when she was young. So after her father passed, she was 
completely alone. She stayed with her mom's cousin and husband on a sheep and horse farm, but ran away after two months. In exchange for this info, he gives her a bit of psychological profiling on Buffalo Bill, and he tells her that the moth in the throat symbolizes change, like metamorphosis, and Bill wants change. And this is when we transition to the iconic scene of Buffalo Bill with a senator's daughter trapped down in a dry well in a cellar, and he says he lowers some lotion down in a bucket and says it puts the lotion on his skin or else it gets the hose again. Mm. That's, that's and, the iconic scene? I think that's an iconic line. Oh, yeah, that line for sure, yeah. I think it's spoofed in comedic environments quite often, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, She starts crying and saying she wants to see her mommy, and you can see that Bill's a bit touched by this, so he starts to cry for a moment and then loses his calm and his his sadness turns to anger and he yells at her. Yeah, I thought this was a very scary scene, Like, and and this kind of like showed the range of, of the actor. Yeah, yeah, scary, disturbing. Right. Both of these villains are just kind of, you wouldn't expect Buffalo Bill to be a complex character, but he is for multiple reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think we'll get into one later, too. Okay. Um, so then the director made a choice here when transitioning from this scene with Buffalo Bill to the prison. He made the choice to do a match cut from Buffalo Bill maniacally laughing to Chilton laughing, <laughs> the prison, prison director laughing. As yeah. he's explaining to Lecter that the deal Clarice offered was fake, but he can offer him a real one. And what Chilton is trying to do here is extract the Buffalo Bill information himself so that he can be the hero. Um, and I think this cut was a way to parallel Bill's villainy, Buffalo Bill's villainy, with Chilton's villainy. Because as we talked about the, before, this movie does a weird thing in that you're kind of also rooting for Lecter, even though he's this horrible killer. Mm-hmm. And Lecter has declared Chilton as his, as his nemesis. Yep. yep. So it's like Buffalo Bill's Clarice's villain and Chilton is Lecter's villain. Oh, uh, wait. Oh, yeah, interesting. So you have those two parallels going there? Yeah, in my mind. Interesting. Okay, cool. And I mean, you've seen Chilton be a dick to Clarice, so yeah. you don't like him anyway for your own purposes. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> like, out of the three, like, if you had to pick, like, who you hated the most, would it be Chilton? I think it would be Chilton, yeah. <laughs> the, the guy who's, like, trying to get ahead in his career. <laughs> right, above the guy who's eaten a bunch of people <laughs> yeah. and above the guy who's got a woman trapped in a well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. <laughs> it, it is. It's interesting how... Our minds work. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, maybe just you and I are kind of fucked up. <laughs> I know. I know. It's kind of disturbing a uh, statement. I'm uh, saying how I'd really want to prove myself to Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> well, you know, he's just like such a brilliant guy, right? Like, I feel like, yeah, uh, yeah Buffalo Bill and uh, Hannibal, maybe they're humanized more. Or like, you un- you see, like, both their uh, vulnerability, but also, like, uh, um, at least with Hannibal, like, you recognize, like, he's a genius at, at some level. But um, this guy who runs the facility, like, he's got no, like, redeeming qualities. Yeah, yeah. That is a, an accurate assessment. You're given more humanity. Uh, if not humanity, at least complexity with Buffalo Bill and, yeah. and Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, as part of this new deal that Chilton offers to Lecter, Lecter says he'll provide Buffalo Bill's name, but he'll only say it to the face of the Tennessee senator after he's flown to Tennessee. 
So they put a face mask on him for this trip that's uh, slightly terrifying, and it's a look that's become kind of iconic and synonymous with Hannibal Lecter. What did yeah, you think of this? I, I love that mask. Is that um, That's not like a normal mask that's used. That was like developed for this film, right? Yes, it was developed, I think, for this film, but it was done by a guy who supposedly designs masks for hockey goalies. Oh, okay. Cool. So yeah. I don't know if it was like an existing model that he had or if he modified something mm-hmm. to the movie's specs or what. Yeah, yeah, that's like one of the best like uh best best masks uh, I've seen in a film. It's really good. Yeah, ooh, a best masks episode would be good. Yeah, yeah, so definitely be in there. Uh, when Hannibal Lecter arrives at the Memphis airport, it's made clear to us viewers that he's got Chilton's pen which was foreshadowed in the last scene. We saw a close-up of, of Chilton's pen, and this was also foreshadowed, as Ashwin said, in the beginning instructions that were given to Clarice, like, don't take a pen in there. Um, so we know from the beginning of the film that even something as simple as a pen is deadly in Lecter's possession, and here he's, we know he's got one. We're the only ones who know he's got one. Uh, Lecter meets with the senator, and after making some crude comments to her, he does eventually reveal to her Buffalo Bill's name, which Clarice later deduces to be an anagram for iron sulfide, which is fool's gold, uh, which means Lecter is sending the authorities on a wild goose chase. You ever play Wordle? Le- no, but every, I'm, I feel like I'm the only person in the world that doesn't play Wordle. Oh, yeah. I feel like all these anagrams that he was like dropping on Clarice uh, just reminded me of like he would have been probably a fan of Wordle. He would have been a big Wordle guy, perhaps yeah. even the app designer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so Lecter is put in a cell at the Tennessee courthouse and Clarice goes to visit him entirely of her own volition at this point. He asks more questions of her and she reveals that when she was staying with relatives at that ranch, she awoke one night to a horrible sound and it was lambs screaming before their slaughter. She grabbed a lamb and tried to run away and the rancher was so mad that he sent her to live at an orphanage. And Lecter says something to her, you know, always analyzing her character that she's trying to, to prove herself and to do this good so that she can s- silence the lambs. She, she says she still wakes up at night sometimes and hears them screaming. So I think that's a little a bit of a, a touch on the theme is that Clarice is trying to, like, do something to not only help the world but to, like, make peace with her own past. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I felt too. Like it's her, about her own grief and like putting it to rest somehow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And her dad was killed by criminals. That's that's how he died. So. Oh right, in like a robbery, right? Yeah. So not only did he work in law enforcement, but he was killed by criminals. So I think it gives Clarice even more motivation to work in law enforcement and keep people from being hurt. Yeah. To to save the lambs. Right. Um. So, and Lecter tells her everything she needs to know is in Buffalo Bill's case file, which she goes home and reviews in more detail. But after she leaves, Lecter uses the pen to escape and murder the two guards watching him. He then gets transported from the scene in an ambulance because he disguised himself in not only one of the guard's clothing, but also that guard's face by cutting off the face and putting it over his own and then lying on his back on his on the ground and pretending to be this officer injured. That blew me away, man. I, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, pretty rad. I, I kind of forgot about that scene. Yeah, that's like one of the best Like I knew escapes. he got away here, but I forgot the details, and it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, it's like one of the best escape scenes I've ever seen. 
Yeah. Uh, also, thought it was cool how uh, he staged the death of uh, you know when, when they come onto the scene, they see like the cop. I think there's like one cop like hanging and he's like cut open, and like they're just like spotlights on him in like the stark room. So, yeah, yeah, it it's a pretty iconic shot. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, so Clarice researches the case file and decides to go back to the town of Buffalo Bill's first murder, which ultimately leads her to the home of a seamstress. The seamstress doesn't live there anymore, but a man answers the door and invites her in. And when she sees a death's head moth fluttering around the house, she realizes this is Buffalo Bill. He flees to the basement where they have a tense cat and mouse game. Uh, she stumbles upon a decomposing body in a bathtub. She finds the senator's daughter trapped down in this well and they've got a cat and mouse game going and he turns off the power and starts hunting her in the pitch black with night vision goggles as he cocks his gun to shoot her the sound reveals his location and she turns around and shoots him in the shoots him dead um i think she shoots him in the chest right Uh, he's like coughing up blood yep um and while all this is happening, kind of before it happens, they're using this cross-cutting trick where the FBI is descending on Buffalo Bill's house, but we learn that they've got the wrong place. They're in Illinois, and Clarice is here in Ohio. She's got the right place, and they're uh, about to ambush an empty house. So you kind of get this tense scene where you think she's going to have her, like, be saved by the FBI, but it it turns out she's all alone here. Yeah, that was really clever because yeah, you think you think the FBI are, are the ones knocking on the door, and then you see it, so now it's Clarice, yeah, by herself. Yep. Yeah, I love that, and that's one of those things that makes you think about like quote unquote the language of movies. Mm-hmm. Like, why did you you saw a collection of images, but they're presented in such an order that you've seen before in other movies that makes you think they're about to come into the house that she's in. Totally. So it's just fun. I mean, that's obvious, but it's fun to realize that that's that's what's happening, and that you're that the language of movies is being used to trick you. Yeah. Well, th- this is before she's even in the house, right? Like we don't even know she's at a house. Well, all we're seeing is the FBI are in front of a house, and they're ringing the doorbell, and then we're seeing Buffalo Bill like in the basement, like hearing a bell going off. And so he goes upstairs to open the door, and we're expecting to see the FBI out there, right? Right, yeah, I guess that's the moment where you realize she's on her own. Yeah, right, yeah. Right as she's entering the house. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you're right, yeah, it's a, like a, a kind of scary scene, and like you were kind of like led with this belief, but yeah, I mean, you kind of assume that we, it can't be this easy. We're like, the FBI already there. Yeah. Um, but after she shoots him, soon the authorities do arrive on the scene, and they escort the senator's daughter out of the house, and Clarice's director takes her under his arm and asks if she's okay. And did you notice, I assume this was done on purpose, but the senator's daughter is clinging to uh, Buffalo Bill's little dog, which she previously tried to use as bait. Right. And I thought maybe this was a parallel to Clarice running from the farm clutching the lamb. Because oh. this dog looks exactly like a lamb would. It's this tiny, white, fluffy dog. Good point. Yeah, yeah. And the dog, like, when um, when she's in the cave, is, like, constantly barking. But I, I assume at this point the dog's silent, right? Yeah, there you go. She silenced the dog. 
Dude, wow. And I, I, I thought it was kind of a parallel to like coming out of, tra- of a traumatic situation. And one of the cops tries to reach for the dog and take it out of her hands and she refuses. Ah, oh, interesting. And I thought maybe it's a parallel of like coming out of this traumatic situation feeling like if they can save one one lamb, one dog, one whatever, like yeah. they can exert some control over the situation and save some someone else from suffering or something like that. Like yeah. somehow make peace with the, the situation. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I was wondering why, like, the dog is there at the end, or why she's coming out with it. Because at first she was trying to kill the dog, I think, or at least use it to like, get out of there. I guess. Yeah, she essentially used the dog as a hostage because she knew how much Buffalo Bill loved it. Yeah. What was the dog's name? Like Butterscotch or something? Oh man, good question. Ah, yeah, I don't remember. I so, I even I feel like the the real dog's name was Darling as an actor. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Darling the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I can't remember the, the character, the oh, dog's okay. character's name. Okay. Um, so we move forward in time a bit to Clarice's graduation to an FBI agent, and her director is hanging in the back of the room with a watchful eye, and they exchange glances, and then he leaves the room after she walks the stage, implying that he came to the ceremony just for her. And later in the hallway, they exchange a handshake, and there's a close-up shot on the handshake, and he says, your father would have been proud of you today. And I think that really brings the theme home, that she sees him as a proxy for her father. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. I was wondering why they zoomed in on that handshake, but uh, yeah. I guess with that with that quote, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that's why. And then moments later, she gets a call, and it's Lecter. And he says, uh, don't worry about me calling on you. The world is a more interesting place with you in it. And she tells him, unfortunately, she can't make the same promise. And he says, I'd love to keep talking, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. <laughs> and we see Chilton getting off of a plane. And the the credits run as they're on this like island in the Bahamas. And the credits run as we see Chilton walking down a street with, uh, with, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on his name. <laughs> with I just had a weird moment. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, with Lecter following right behind him. Yeah, I thought this was funny. With folklore following right behind. Him. Oh yeah, yeah, the folklore. <laughs> uh, how inconspicuous could he be there? Like you're, you're like the two white guys on this. <laughs> I, did, did you feel like that was kind of like? I mean, a, I, I assume Bahamas are flooded with tourists. Yeah, I guess maybe it was just that shot. Like there was like only two white people, and he's like wearing a goofy hat too. So I just feel like that if that guy turns around, he like cannibal's the first guy he's gonna see out there. But <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you can tell the guy's paranoid. Like he knows that he's Lecter's nemesis. And yeah, yep, yeah. Again, a moment where you're kind of rooting for for Hannibal. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, what did you think of the movie, man? Pros, cons, if there were any? Um, you know, I couldn't find too many cons, man. I, I think this is, like, one of the best movies I've seen. I thought, like, the performances were all just, like, so incredible. And it wasn't, like, all on, like, one or two of them. Like, I, f- I feel like every character in this uh, movie was just, like, so well done. Had a lot of depth and range to them. Uh, you had, like, the scary uh, Hannibal Lecter and, and, like, how he was performing, uh, which was just wild and, like, so unpredictable. And then Buffalo Bill, like, on the opposite side of him, completely different, but equally as scary in a whole different, more, like, wild emotional way 
that it was just cool to have both of those villains in this uh, movie kind of paired together, but also a little bit humanized, which which I, I thought was interesting. And then the direction, the score, the sequencing, everything in here was just amazing. And then loved the fact that they were able to like layer in these themes around uh, innocence, the lambs, uh, and then I, I feel like there was like a big play on uh, sexism and like her uh, gender role as she was like going through this um, case. So I, I thought it was just like really well done and really smart. Uh, what, what about you? I agree, man. And yeah, that gender role, I think, is an important part. And it really adds to the theme of her trying to prove herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you just see, like, there's even a shot. I think it's when she flies into Tennessee. We see a shot of some random dude at the airport, like, stepping in front of her and turning right around just to look <laughs> at her and then, like, continuing to walk. Yeah. Uh, there's just so many scenes. I won't name them all, but I, I wrote down a few <laughs> examples where... so. People look at her longer than they should, or she walks away and they just keep staring at her. Always yeah, men. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely about the gender thing. Yeah. Um, and and uh, you feel like she's, like, all, obviously, like, all the time, like, aware of this, right? Or, or do you get the sense that, like, she's kind of brushing it off and just, like, staying... Like, how much does that get to her, you think, as a character? Uh, hmm. Good question. I think she seems to stay so focused she, that she doesn't let it get to her as much as she could. Yeah, I think so too. But I, I mean, I, I think she like like acts that way, and like for most of the times, uh, you believe that. There's one interaction that she has in the car. I think after they do the autopsy, where uh, the um, her her boss is like, you know, I'm sorry that uh, you know I, I, I didn't have you in the room with us. Did that bother you? And she's like straight out, like, yeah, that bothers me. Like, don't do that. So you can. I I feel like that was like kind of revealing that like she notices this stuff, but she's like not letting it stop her. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it, it's she's a cool character. And like mm-hmm. you said, the performances were great and nuanced, but all the characters were too. Like there wasn't a poorly written character in the movie. Right? Yeah. That's, I feel like that's so rare to see. Like every character is like so well written. Yeah. And as Howard Shore said, where he tried to make a score that you wouldn't notice and that would just perfectly fit the movie... I'm borrowing a little bit from, I listened to like half of the Unspooled podcast episode on Silence of the Lambs, but one thing they were talking about was how the direction wasn't flashy. Mm-hmm. Like, they, and I've I've read that before from cinematographers who say like, if you're noticing the shots, like, oh, this is a neat shot, or wow, look at that shot, I haven't done my job. Like, oh. I want you to be so absorbed in the movie that you don't notice. And I think this is a movie like that, where... Not to say elements don't stand out, but it's just everything that is done is a really good choice to just serve the story so that the story can shine through as clearly as possible. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Like without any distractions. Yeah, which I think is a big thing for a movie like this to do because it's a pretty action event heavy plot. Like there's a lot going on. You're also trying to pack in these nuanced characters to do too much with the direction would be distracting from a lot of information that you have to take in, both as far as the events of the plot themselves and hints as to who the characters are. Yeah, right. Um, so the fact that the acting is, is one of the greatest strengths of the movie is powerful because the characters are, are one of the biggest strengths of the story. Right, yeah, that's what we want to focus on. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. But, but I, I, I mean, I, I still feel like uh, there were parts definitely were like that. Like I feel like the whole um, scene where he kills uh, the the two guards and then escapes. Like I, the music really set out to me there, and um, I feel like there were other parts too. Like even the opening where like the music I, th- I thought like was playing like a, cru- a crucial role in like what was happening. It felt like cinematic at parts. Uh, yes. Did, did you feel that way? Yeah, sure. And I think that you and I are watching movies with analysis in mind. So not to say the average viewer wouldn't notice it, but I think that for us, it's less likely that things are going to blend in to the movie seamlessly because we were specifically looking for things like that to talk about on a podcast later. But, But I think... For me, once the movie got going, I was largely just in it. It was, yeah, you know, I wasn't writing down, wow, that shot or <laughs> that that directorial choice like I do in some movies, which... Sure. It's a sign I, of, I, like, boredom. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying it's bad in other movies. Like, I don't know if I even agree with some of that philosophy of, like, I don't want anyone to notice the, yeah. the elements of my job. I, I think certain movies really call for that i think certain movies call for both approaches and i think this sure. was a good choice for uh a light hand a light touch with with yeah. each particular craft i think you're right yeah it was, it was very subtle I, I think it flexed at parts where it, it could and like it, it uh without like impeding on the characters or like their story that they're telling or their performances yeah one thing i thought was a little more underwhelming than i remembered it being was the conclusion of the cat and mouse game with Buffalo Bill and Jodie Foster. Hmm. I think it just concluded really fast with him cocking the gun and her turning around and getting him. Yeah. Yeah. That was a scene where I would have maybe liked to have seen more directorial or cinematographical (laughs) touches to it to, to make it pop a little bit more. Sure. I, you know, I, I thought the night vision was like what was popping, uh, because like that reminded me of, uh, like quarantine that, that we saw, like that came out in the two thousands. And so to see this movie from the nineties kind of doing like that similar night vision, watching someone in the dark, uh, I felt like that, that kind of seemed like ahead of its time to me, but maybe it was like more widely used back then. And I've, I just haven't gotten back that far and seen that stuff. That's cool, man. Yeah, and you're right. And her, like, fluttering around in the dark, like us seeing her knowing she can't see anything. Yeah. I think part of it is just that I've seen this a few times before, so I wasn't quite as wowed at the big... I, I guess I remembered there was a lot about the movie I forgot, but I didn't forget that that element of the movie. So. Oh, sure. So you, like, Yeah, I think it. as a first-time viewer, I may have been found that scene more powerful. Yeah, yeah. Do you think if they had... There's a weird dynamic in this film, because I, I feel like the villain you're concentrating mostly on Hannibal. And I don't know if that's because we're biased and we know that that's what the franchise is going to go towards. Do you feel like if they had given us more of Buffalo Bill in that scene or, like, say he captured her and tortured her a little bit or there was more uh, back and forth there, it would have maybe um, watered down or re- reduced, like, the, the perception of Hannibal as, like, the key villain? Uh, or, or do you feel like he wasn't the key villain and it was Buffalo Bill? Hmm... I think I, yeah. the lines of villain get a little bit blurred in this. And I I don't want anyone to be like, oh, my God, Brian thinks a guy who's got a woman <laughs> trapped in a well isn't the villain of the movie. Yeah. But <laughs> maybe pizza. this is a good spot to transition into the horror versus thriller arguments. I think so, yeah. 
in yeah. a thriller one trademark we discussed we broke this down a little bit i would have liked to have gone into this in even more detail but i just didn't have time when prepping for this episode but <laughs> the last time we discussed thrillers versus horror i think was in the conjuring the devil made me do it huh okay. which we thought functioned a lot more like a thriller yeah and we mentioned the concept of a MacGuffin, which is typically thought of as an object that the villains are after. It's like typically integral to the film. Um, but there's this director who also argued in his book that he wrote called Constructing a Story that it can also be any secret that motivates the villain or villains. And I think in this story, Buffalo Bill served more as a MacGuffin than a villain. So I don't think, like, he was the thing that Clarice was chasing. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't, like, the bad guy she was confronting with. He wasn't, like, giving speeches. He, you know, we weren't, like, didn't have an intimate relationship with his villainy. He was what we were always trying to find out more about. Like, an element of a thriller is, like, going on these little missions to multiple locations to find more knowledge like uh, a killer operating in the shadows is another trademark of that so um i think my my argument is that this is a thriller and that buffalo bill is the macguffin it's the macguffin and then is there a villain or would you say there's no villain here i think there are multiple villains but the complexity of the story and the characters means that there is no traditional, like, villain. Like, yeah. to say that Buffalo Bill has zero villainy is is not accurate. He is yeah. a villain, but he's also the MacGuffin. Yeah. Uh, to say that Hannibal Lecter is not a villain is inaccurate. He is a villain, but he's also a main character and, in a strange sense, a hero. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, he does help, you know, he is the reason that Clarice finds Buffalo Bill. Sure, sure. Um, and Chilton is a villain just because he's a douche. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I wish you could have seen him get what he was due, uh, but that's definitely coming. Um, you know, <laughs> I would have liked a post-credit scene of that <laughs> yeah. that meal, that dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, the MacGuffin thing plays into the thriller angle, and I agree that Buffalo Bill is the MacGuffin, and that would support this being a thriller. But going back to the other point about like this final scene or like the showdown between her and the MacGuffin being so short. I think that builds the argument around this being a horror because I think you do have a monster in this movie, which is Hannibal Lecter, and all the story uh, around him, how he's like killing people, how he's like uh, pr- uh, portrayed in every interaction with him, his like unpredictability, the mask they put on him. He is like, uh, and he's not like someone like uh, he's not like uh, someone that's like being hunted or chased down. So he, to me, he like seems like more like a, a typical like monster from a, a horror film. So I. I think you have a thriller, but then you have a monster in there that then I think pulls us into the horror category. Yeah, I think that there is a strong argument to be made on either side. Like we we mentioned this, like received an award for best horror film. Like it's mentioned in articles as one of the only horror film, the only horror film to win best picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the IMDb genre tags don't have it. Don't they? Don't have the horror hmm. tag listed for it. What do they have? Like psychological thriller or something? They call it a thriller. Oh, okay. Um, I, some of the arguments on on your side of the argument, that the horror side, the ones you said, yes, I totally agree with, and I think 
Hannibal is such an iconic villain that that concept itself bleeds over into the horror mindset. Like, oh yeah, a singularly terrifying villain with a specific look when he's got that mask on. Right. He he yeah. sits along people's shelves right next to Freddy and Jason as those little um, garbage pieces of plastic that people think are the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> what are those called Garbage again? pill kids or whatever? Is, is that... <laughs> no, you probably don't even know what these things are. Oh. oh, man. I'm insulting all of our listeners when I call them garbage. <laughs> um, shit, what are they called? It's like these little like bobblehead-looking things that are just collectible figurines. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it on the I shelf. Wanna, I want to say like pop something. Oh, my God. I'm embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's an icon. He's a classic horror villain, I guess. He's a classic villain with a franchise that is under his name. It's not called the Silence of the Lamb franchise. It's called the Hannibal Lecter franchise. Yeah. The skin mask is horrifying that he makes for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way he, like, flays that cop and, like, disembowels him is a horrifying image. Right. He, well, we see a woman decomposing in a tub. There's a lot of horror imagery, and I think that it's almost up to the viewer to decide sometimes when something is a horror or a thriller. I sure. think there an argument could be made that there's enough shocking, disturbing imagery that this can bleed into the horror category. Yeah, right. But I myself would call this a gritty thriller. Yeah. I think there are many thrillers that have this kind of horrifying imagery i always bring this show up on the show because i think it's a prime example of how gory media has gotten without being horror game of thrones has incredibly shocking content but no one would call it horror yeah yeah that's true that's a good point yeah you can have horror elements and it still not be a horror for sure yes yeah i think there are a lot of horror elements he's a cannibal he's a cannibal that's that's the stuff (laughs) of horror movies yeah um i think this is a thriller it's chock full of some horror elements, but the structure of the movie just precludes it from being a thrill, a horror movie to me. Yeah, 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 I hear you. I think where I struggle is like take this movie, compare it to Kiss the Girls, uh, Along Came uh, a Spider, or like all these other, or even like Seven. Seven, where, right? Yeah, you're hunting someone down. Um, and that person is the focus of of the movie. And I thought strategically in this film, Buffalo Bill, I, I wouldn't call him the focus of the movie. Like, he's there to serve, like, why things are happening. But it really comes down to this dynamic between her and Hannibal. And if you look at Hannibal then as, like, the main villain or the monster in this, which he does become for the franchise, uh, wouldn't you say they are then, you know, like, going away from, like, the traditional thriller, which I think would have seen a greater showdown between her and Buffalo Bill or spent more time on him? Uh, versus um, what we saw here, which was like very limited time for him, more about these spooky interactions with her and this this so-called monster. I think that it makes it even more of a thriller that you don't see much of Buffalo Bill. And he is, I mean, he is what the movie, he drives the plot. Every single thing that happens, happens because Buffalo Bill is out there killing people. 
Like, yeah. She doesn't go talk to Hannibal Lecter otherwise. Like, nothing right. in the movie happens without Buffalo Bill. Yeah, I, I think he's there to, to drive the plot, but in terms of, like, being on the screen or getting to know his character or uh, seeing, like, him, like, stalking people or hunting people, um, I, w- I would think, like, if it was more of a traditional thriller, you'd see more of the killer, more of them in action or, like, doing crazy shit or, like, a bigger showdown between the killer and uh, the main character. But I, I think b- because you don't have a lot of that... Uh, this kind of like moves away from thriller to more uh, focusing on Hannibal and uh, Jodie Foster. I think I, I would argue I would use your argument to put it in the opposite category. I would I would put it in a thriller because you don't see Buffalo Bill's kills and you don't see much of him on screen. That, that would make him more of a Michael Myers type. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. So it, yeah, more killer would then make it more horror. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but then it's it not just, like Michael Myers is driving a, a bunch of complex character actions from yeah. other characters in the film. He is the film. It, it's all about him, and and the other the characters are just there because they're victims of him. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. I, I think when you have uh, a character like Michael Myers chasing people, and it's the focus is on him and who he's chasing. That's one thing. Uh, when you have this type of setup where it's like a cop chasing uh, a killer, then I feel like that's most of the time obviously going to be like a thriller. But this one, I feel like uh, by not having the focus be so much on the cop and the killer and instead on this third party who's like this crazy person, uh, I, I feel like that's what makes it kind of the wild card. Okay. Yeah. I can accept that argument. I, I think that the third person, if, if, if we can call Hannibal Lecter the third person for this purpose serves the function of enlightening us even more into the depth of Clarice's character. Oh, yeah, sure. And he is a puzzle. He's a puzzle that she has to solve to get to Buffalo Bill. Not to reduce his character to nothing but a puzzle, but he adds the tension, he adds the mind game, he adds the psychological element. Yeah, you think he is the puzzle? Because one of the things I was wondering is like, I don't feel like we learn too much more. He's set up as like this dude who's obviously been jailed because he ate some people or whatever. Um, but we don't really dive into him at all. He's there more just kind of like taunting her, playing these mind games with her and then giving her clues, which I thought was more similar to like horror monsters where like like Michael Myers, where like you don't know anything about them. And that's kind of like what's so scary is they're not like you're not trying to like understand them more. But did you feel like we were like doing a character study of Hannibal in this one? Yeah, I mean, Michael Myers was pretty big into anagrams. I'll give you that. <laughs> That's true, yeah. He was always sitting down at that uh, New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> um, <laughs> no, I mean, I guess Hannibal Lecter isn't a puzzle, but he provides the puzzles for them to solve. Like, yeah. I, I, I just don't think he is a traditional horror villain. Like, he, he is in... in the image and his legacy, but not in the role he plays in the movie. Like, uh, I yeah. think Hannibal Lecter is like the sole reason you can argue this is a horror movie, but he's also just not in the film that much. I mean, I guess that there are plenty of horror villains that aren't in the movie that much. Right. I don't know. I'm losing track of my argument now. I know, which sometimes like works to their favor, right? Because that builds up like the holy shit, like, I, I don't know what this person's going to do. Like, they're just so unpredictable, and we see, like, so little of them, and it just adds more uh, intrigue around them and makes yeah. them maybe scarier. Yeah, but he's also not perpetrating any violence until the very end of the movie. 
Um, yeah, but he has this whole history of, like, how many people has this guy killed and eaten? Um, so just because he's not doing it, like, in this, what, say, like, this movie takes place over two or three weeks or something, and maybe he only kills, like, two or three people in that time, uh, he definitely, I don't know, I'd I'd put him up there with, like, a Michael Myers in terms of, like, uh, you know, brutality, kill count, hunting people down, and then even eating them. I mean, that's, that's even more, uh, scarier than a lot of what those guys do. So maybe I'll give you this. I'll say silent, or... Silence of the Lambs is not a horror film, but Hannibal Lecter is a horror villain. He's a horror villain in a thriller film. Mm, okay. Uh, That's as far as I'll go. I really <laughs> don't think this is a horror movie, though. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nah, yeah but uh, you think, you? well, the side you land on is this is a horror movie? Yeah, I think I would say, because just uh, when I compare it to those other thrillers and like the cop dramas, I think there's a clear distinction there. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I would still stick with horror, but I'll agree with you that he's a horror character as well. Okay, and you think the clear district, the clear distinction between other police procedural films and this is Hannibal Lecter himself. Yeah, yeah, I think he brings an element which pulls us into horror because I think the story is more focused on him and Clarice versus Clarice and Buffalo Bill. Okay, yeah, I agree. I agree with you there. The fo- it's about him and Clarice more than Buffalo Bill, and that's yeah. why I say he's a MacGuffin because he's not as much of a character as. He is. I mean, he's a, they do a good job making him complex, but the function he serves in the film is more the MacGuffin than the function of a traditional yeah. character. Hey, is MacGuffin like an Irish term or something? Uh, I can't remember the origin of the term or, or the etymology. I, I, I don't remember where they got that. Oh, okay, okay. Cool. Okay. Um, so let's see here. You know, another element of the movie that I wish I was more prepared to discuss, but I didn't have as much time to research was, um, the sexuality at play here and mm. the LGBTQ community, um, saying that Buffalo Bill really is a problematic character and the fact that he's trans demonizes transsexuals and makes them look transsexual people and makes them look you know like crazy dangerous people uh, yeah i mean i can imagine especially like in the early 90s I, i'm sure like he didn't have too much representation on screen and so having this there is probably a lot more controversial right yeah 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 so so that's been a beef in this movie um people on the other side of that debate will say he he's not he's not trans like he's described as such like Hannibal Lecter says he's not trans he he's basically just doesn't like his identity and he thinks that will save him from himself yeah I thought that was really interesting and I think the director also like kind of said something to that effect as well right yeah but, right yeah which I, I understand but I, I also think it's kind of a fine line to walk there I don't, I don't really it know is. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a hard one. Uh, but yeah, it just makes for like such a complex character. Like he, uh, it's not that like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just like this such like an identity thing going on there. It kind yeah. of adds to, to the scariness of him. And in the iconic scene where he's dancing around and he's got his penis tucked between his legs to see what he would look like as a woman, mm-hmm. he's listening to a song called Goodbye Horses. And the person who wrote that song, shit, I didn't write down their name, said that the song was about uh, transcending your own five senses to like uh, transcend reality and get to like the next level of spiritual reality, and I wondered if that was symbolism of Bill trying to transcend his own physical reality. Oh, interesting, cool. And we have never—I haven't said this, but Bill is trying to make a s- suit from women's skin. 
Yeah, was he gonna wear it? I guess that that's what you do with the suit. Oh, yeah, and he put it there in. was one other gruesome scene with him like at a sewing machine with what's fairly clearly skin. Oh yeah. Um, yep. So I think that's the argument I would I would most accept for horror category is that this has a lot of horror imagery in it. But yeah, yeah. back to my Game of Thrones reasoning, I, I think there's plenty of media with horror imagery that does not qualify as horror. Yeah, and I feel like we're on the other side of that too, we also have horror films where there isn't that much horror imagery, like ones that like aren't scary at all, right? They're just sure, like maybe right. really tense. Right. I think horror is more about intention by the creators and structure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I feel like structure here. You had a very like cop chasing a, a, a dude, but I, I think uh, Hannibal Lecter. To, to me, horror is like the the unknown and like the fear of like uh, what you don't understand. And uh, yeah, and, and like that, you know, it not being resolved completely at the end. So that that's that's what kind of what I feel like uh, puts us more in that category. All right, fair enough. Well, zero to five glasses of Chianti. What do you give this movie? Oh man, I think uh, yeah, I got to go five glasses of Chianti. Man, it was just uh, amazing on on every level. So yeah, I, I thought it was really good. What about you? Yeah, I got to go five as well. I think the only drawbacks for me was, as I said, being slightly underwhelmed by that conclusion. The the Basically, the conclusion of the conclusion when she turns around and shoots him. But I do think I'm a little bit of a victim of having seen it before. And it's a bit of a long movie, but the pacing is really good and it keeps moving. So I I wouldn't deduct any points for it. And I had to pee. So I think that was (laughs) why I was like, boy, this is long. (laughs) What is it, like two hours? Is it two hours? Oh, boy. I wish I had written it down. Yeah, I think it's about two hours. I think maybe a little over two hours. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, 118 minutes. So actually just shy of two hours. Just shy of two hours. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, those those were minor beasts. I didn't feel any either were worth deducting a, a point, a glass of Chianti. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really strong story. I think it's a very well-written story. And I think the performances, you know, everything was good about the movie. There, there was almost no flaw in the technical elements, but the performances were really like the shining light to, to me. Like that... That elevates the movie to to an all time classic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's because crazy. I mean, not only are they great performances, but they just they really bring the story to life. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Really well done. Cool. Anything else, man? No, I think that's it. Alrighty. Well, that has been our discussion on Silence of the Lambs, everybody. If you enjoyed it, feel free to give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click the social links uh, or the contact form there. You can complete that and submit it to us. Uh, But the social links has a link to our Twitter and Facebook where we mention what movie we're going to be covering next week. It's also got a link to our Discord server where you can come chat with us and other movie fans. We're really proud of that community there. It's a great place to come hang out and talk horror. So... If you're looking for uh, people to talk about horror with that you don't have any in person, just come join our Discord server, and I I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, You can also reach out to us by sending an email to podcast at horrormovieclub.com. On horrormovieclub.com, there's a big orange button to subscribe to our Patreon content for as low as a dollar as a month. You'll get access to some bonus episodes that way. Uh, Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. You can check her out on etsy.com i suggest just googling or searching etsy.com for a horror movie club coaster set and you'll find a coaster set she designed for us and that will take you to her page where she's got plenty of other horror art 
And I think that's about it. So until next time, if you run a high security prison, uh, this may be difficult to do, but try to avoid being considered a quote unquote nemesis to any of the prisoners. <laughs> Just in case anything should ever go awry with security protocol. Maybe like bake them some muffins from time to time. Yeah, and maybe just like carry a crayon around on your clipboard instead of a bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>